0: Welcome back to Death Walks with Us. I'm your host, Angela. Today's episode is different than the other few that I have made as it is about an unsolved case. This episode is also the first episode where I did not use any books um, besides a few documentaries. My research is all internet-based, so no book for the base to start from. This episode is about the unsolved murders of 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German on the Delphi Historic Trails in Delphi Carroll County which is in central Indiana. Before we begin I want to state that this story is an extremely important one as two children were murdered and it has yet to be solved. Also I want to say that some of their family members are very vocal about this case and I will use their names But there are some especially other siblings that are rarely mentioned and are rarely named so besides kelsey liberty's sister i'm not going to name them they are kept out of the documentary so i take that as a sign that they want some privacy i try not to use fake names so i will only say how they are related to the victims now on with the case Abigail Williams, who everyone seemed to call Abby, was born on June 23, 2003. Abigail was born to 19-year-old Anna Williams in Murray, Michigan, moving to Delphi when Abby was in preschool. They had moved to Indiana to live with Anna's mother, who had divorced Anna's father, soon after Abby was born eventually moving to Indiana. By some accounts, Anna and Abby grew up together. This mother-daughter duo were really close as Abby was Anna's only child, and Anna was a single mother working to support them both. Abby loved reading, taking photos, the outdoors, and sports. She was described as kind and joyful. The weekend before her murder, her grandfather, Cliff Williams, had traveled down from Michigan to take Abby shopping. She had joined the softball team and needed equipment. He said she was so excited to be playing softball with Libby. She was close to her mother's family and would go up to Michigan for a couple of weeks every summer. Abby had been Cliff's only granddaughter and he doted on her. Liberty German, who everyone seemed to call Libby, was born on December 27, 2002, in Lafayette, Indiana, to Derek, German, and Carrie Timmons. Libby's parents divorced, and she, her two sisters, one being from her father's previous relationship, and her father lived with their father's mother, Becky, and her husband, Mike, Patty. This set of grandparents helped raise Libby and her sisters. Libby's mother, Carrie, was living in Kentucky with her other two daughters and was going through a divorce with her husband, 266 miles away. Carrie said Libby would call her to check on her and give her encouragement because of the divorce. She wanted people to be happy and was constantly described that way. Libby loved sports and science. She was described as adventurous, full of life, and investigative. She was always asking questions. That could be from her love of science. She wanted to be a science teacher, and she had excelled at science so much, she was taking advanced classes at nearby Purdue University. Libby and Abby were eighth graders at Delphi Community Middle School, and they were best friends who spent a lot of time together so much so that Abby would even go away on vacations with Libby's family. Like a lot of young people, they loved posting on social media. Now their school district was not like my school district. They did snow day make up days. In America, schools have a certain amount of snow days where they can close the school and still get their funding. Now I know I have a lot of downloads in other countries, so I'm going to explain a little bit about this in america because parents want to control their children's education a lot of funding comes from local taxpayers who vote on the amount they will pay and school districts also get some funding from the federal government this system is not the greatest as it allows it for a lot of inequality in education poorer neighborhoods can't afford to pay too much in taxes plus rural areas don't have a huge tax basis and every dollar helps But they also know emergencies happen and schools have to close, so they're allotted a certain amount of snow days to cover days they unexpectedly have to close. Also, for some more context, when my old school, if we went over, we had to make up the days during breaks. For example, one January it rained heavily, melting all the snow that then caused massive amounts of flooding that closed the school for a week. Then, when it was time for our February break, they canceled three days of it and the students had to go to school so the school could get its funding to operate. But my school district, they never gave us extra days off for all those unused school days. But Abby and Libby's school district did, so they had an extended weekend with Monday, February the 13th off, a rare extra day off from school, and they wanted to make the most of it. Plus, it was a warm February day. Sunday, February 12th, 2017, Abby spent the night at Libby's. They slept in on Monday, February 13th. They had woken up after 10 a.m. and then had pancakes. There isn't much to do in Delphi but go to parks and trails. So, a supposedly spur-of-the-moment idea, Libby wanted to go on a hike at the Monon High Bridge that spanned Dare Creek. Libby and her sister Chelsea loved taking photos and had gone to this bridge multiple times in the past and had taken hundreds of pictures of the area. Monon High Bridge is connected to hiking trails on the 8-mile Delphi Historic Trails. This is an old railroad bridge and there are gaps between the planks with an occasional one missing. This could have been Abby's first time on the bridge as Abby's mother had told her not to go on it in the past. I will post photos of this bridge so you can get an idea of what it looks like. Libby asked her sister Kelsey to take them hiking. Her sister had plans before going to work at Dairy Queen and was unable, but after getting permission from her grandmother, Libby talked to her father, who agreed to pick them up at three if Elsie could drop them off, which she could do that, she just couldn't stay with them. Around 1 p.m. on February 13, 2017, Libby and Abby were dropped off at a parking lot with a on high bridge trail sign by Libby's sister Chelsea. It had been a warm sunny Monday afternoon and their grandmother had told them to take jackets. Chelsea had to remind them to take the sweaters they had in the car with them. At 2.07 p.m. about 32 minutes after being dropped off Libby posted a photo of Abby walking on the bridge on Snapchat. The bridge her mother had told her not to go on this photo helped establish a timeline for what is to come. They were supposed to meet Libby's father after 3 p.m. at a prearranged meeting spot. When he got close at 3.11 p.m., he had called Libby to tell her that he was almost there. There was no answer. After arriving and not seeing them, he called her again and again and did not get a response. He kept calling. He started walking the trails and at about 3.30, called his mother and told her that he could not get a hold of Libby and he was wondering if there had been a change of plans, which there hadn't been, so she started calling Libby and could not get a hold of her either. Becky called her sister and her sister tried Libby as well. No one could get a hold of Libby. Because Becky could not get a hold of Libby, she called her husband, Mike, at work, and he immediately left work and headed to the trail. At the trails, Family members were searching for the two girls, and they could not find them. At about 5.30, they decided to call the police, who arrived shortly after. Mike had been walking the trails, ending up at Freedom Bridge, just as the police got there, which isn't far from where the girls were dropped off. Becky had also called Abby's mother to let her know that they could not get a hold of the girls, But Anna was at work and didn't have her phone on her, so she didn't know right away. The family tried to come up with reasons as to where the girls would be. They used their knowledge of the girls to try and piece together where they could have been. No one wanted to think the worst. Plus, this is a small town, a safe town. Chelsea called their mother in Kentucky to see if they had gone to see her. She said they were not coming there chelsea even thought that they maybe lost their phones and were going to be grounded forever over this her grandmother becky thought they were hurt on the trail and couldn't get to their phones if they had fallen through that bridge that would have been a reasonable scenario the bridge was 70 feet above the creek and spanned over 800 feet This bridge was built over a 100 years ago, and the railroad stopped using and maintaining it in the 1980s. Some of the planks were missing, so you had to be careful when crossing it. The family wasn't worried at this point. No one thought the worst could have happened. So I do want to mention this. I found one news article that Libby's mother, Carrie's stepfather, said that they thought that maybe The girls had an argument with someone and went to Abby's 18-year-old brother's house, but I cannot find any information on who Abby's father was, and Abby was Anna's only child. This was the only reference to a brother that I found. Libby had no brothers, so it couldn't have been a misidentification. There's no mention of any brothers in their obituaries. Anyways. The police scanned their social media to see if there was anything on there about meeting someone, of anything that could, at that moment, help them find the two young girls. The police learned that the last known location of the two girls was on that bridge, so they searched it and the surrounding area. They even scaled the bridge to look into all the nook and crannies of the bridge and the surrounding areas below the bridge, nothing. Then Becky remembers. Libby was afraid of the dark. They knew the girls would not choose to be out after dark unless something happened. They also knew that the two girls would stick together. They would not leave the other alone in the dark if something had happened. About midnight, the police and other officials together made the decision to suspend the search. This will be a controversial decision, but they had limited resources to keep the search going all night. That bridge would be dangerous in the dark but that didn't stop the families from continuing their search in the dark. Still, there really wasn't any real worry that any bad had happened to these girls. After all, they lived in a small town with less than 3,000 people. They figured there had to be a logical explanation for why the girls had not met up with Derek. After 3 a.m., some of the family did leave and go home to try and get a few hours sleep, but no one could really sleep. The sun was down and it's terrifying not knowing where your child was. This is a small town and word spread and the next morning hundreds of people showed up to help search, including more professional search teams. They set up a command post at the fire station where 300 people registered to volunteer to search. There were also many volunteers who had not registered to help, so they don't have an accurate number of searchers. The official start time was not till 3 a.m. Unfortunately, weather conditions had prevented them from starting. It was extremely foggy that morning and they could not get the helicopter off the ground. Professional organizations have to keep their search and rescue people safe. They cannot find someone if they have to constantly rescue their own rescuers. I will tell you, I almost fell off a high peak in the Catskills because of the fog. Luckily, my partner grabbed me as I slid down the steep side. Now, I won't hike without my diamond hiking poles. I've hiked in the rain and snow, but the fog was something different. It's not a good experience. Well, at least not for me. I'm only discussing my experiences because the police were criticized for ending the search and not starting it up again until after 10 a.m. But that's just the official start time. Many were already searching. I mean, it can be dangerous conditions, and you have to keep people safe so there are no accidents that takes away from the search. Anyways, the police started talking about bringing in police dogs from Chicago. Many didn't think that was a good sign. Chicago is about two hours away in another state. Friends were terrified for the girls. They were thinking they had to be lost and scared. Then, about noon on am um, February 14th, Valentine's Day, Chelsea, who was near the bridge, heard someone yell that they found a shoe. It was a black Nike, the same shoe that Libby had been wearing. They followed the prints that were near the shoe, and after a few minutes, someone yelled that they had found the girls. Chelsea tried to get to them to see the girls, but she was not able to. They had found their bodies, and it was a gruesome scene sources are different on the location so it was in a range of a quarter to three quarters of a mile away from the bridge where the girls had last been seen their bodies were found 50 feet from deer creek they were on the opposite side meaning they had to cross the stream the bodies were found on 77 year old ron logan's private property The location of the bodies were a forensic challenge. It is a huge crime scene from the bridge to the location of their bodies. There were volunteer footprints, cigarette butts to comb through, and also many volunteers just peed in the woods as there was no time to go back to find a physical bathroom. They also had to interview everyone who was in the area searching to learn what they saw and did, get their statements, but allegedly they still found clues police eventually admitted that they had never seen a scene so horrible. The scene was so gruesome they will never be able to forget it. What we do know is that most likely one of the girls had to watch her best friend being murdered knowing they were next. The clock was ticking to find their killer. Abby's mother Anna was at the fire station and the pastor came to tell her that they found the girl's body. Anna was very upset. She explained that immediately it caused her distress because her daughter had joined a church group and for the last three years had been asking her mother to have her baptized. Her mother had refused simply because she wanted them to do it together as a family. Now she regretted that decision. Louie's mother had been on her way and was at a gas station when she got a call from Chelsea. When she answered it, it was Derek. She knew. Derek rarely ever talked to her. She broke down at the gas station. At 8 a.m. on February 15th. the autopsy was performed and immediately sealed. The police wanted to control the information and release as little as possible. They won't even say how the girls were murdered, just that they were murdered. The police chief said, quote, I'll let that eat us on the inside out. He is hinting at that it was a very brutal death. Knowing true crime, it was probably a very brutal, sadistic sexual crime. I can't help but think of Susan Collins' brutal murder. I wonder if they told the families the extent of the injuries. They would have seen the bodies at the funeral, but that's different than knowing the extent. But honestly, I understand why the police did this, but withholding certain information, especially this, can lead to issues with the public. The public was scared. This was a small town and they didn't know what happened. There was a killer out there. Would this person come after their children? Were their daughters safe? Was it someone they knew? And with little release of information, it brings down the confidence in the police that they are doing their jobs to bring in this monster. People were terrified they had begun to lock their doors, something unheard of before. This community was destroyed. Afterwards, parents wouldn't drop their kids off at the trails anymore. Remember, that was about all kids had to do in this small town and then those who did walk the trails would constantly have to look over their shoulders. This murder happened in broad daylight at 2 p.m. on a Monday afternoon to two kids walking in a safe location, a location that other students were at. Chelsea had dropped the girls off and saw other students there. So anyone could have walked upon this as it happened. To be honest, they had to be scared There was a killer out there, and they needed to take preventative measures until this monster was caught. At 3 p.m., the police announced to the public that it was indeed a double homicide. In the coming years, the police will be very selective over what information they choose to release to the public. Later in that day, the police did release some information, in what the police described as a very heroic act calling Libby a hero for her actions she had recorded a video of a man on that bridge. Libby was very observant of her surroundings. The police release a still from the video of a white man wearing blue jeans, a blue jacket with a hoodie underneath, and what appears to be a hat walking on the bridge. You cannot make out his face. People will start to call this man the bridge guy. The man was about 40 feet away from the girls, and they had to pass him to get to the other side where Libby's father was to meet them. This gave the community hope. Someone had to know this man, and and they thought this case could be solved quickly. Someone had to recognize him. Sketches are not done for people to be on the lookout for a killer. They are done for friends and family to be able to recognize someone they know. When I researched the Night Stalker case, I did not think that any of the sketches looked like Richard Ramirez, but some of his few friends had thought they did and they joked about it, because no one wants to believe that the person they invited into their lives could be a sadistic killer. On February 16th, the police issued a search warrant based off of tips and probable cause to search a home on the other side of town. At dusk, they went in and removed a few boxes of items and searched the surrounding yard with flashlights. They told the media who was outside this home that they were not expecting to make an arrest, just following up on some tips. Whatever the tips were, it was enough to allow them to get a warrant. Reporters said they didn't see any forensic teams come in, so In one documentary, they talked with law experts who say it is a huge deal that they executed a warrant so early in the investigation. It is usually pretty rare for police to do that. Three years afterwards, though, the police said that they don't see it as important now as they had seen it back then. The police were trying to figure out where their attention did not need to be. Now, what was to become a big issue with the case, the prosecutor took to Facebook that night because of rumors. He wrote, quote, Please do not harass, bother, or accuse anyone. There are no charges pending against anyone as a result of the pending investigation. No one at the home search is suspected of committing any crime. Please, please leave these people alone and let the police work. Then, a week after releasing the still, they released an audio clip from the video of him saying, down the hill. Down the hill from the bridge was where the bodies were found. Now when I listened to the audio clip, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear any voice saying anything. But the audio clip they release that is cleaned up was some will consider it manipulated where they isolate the voice, I hear a man say, down the hill. That is the one that is being circulated. At a press conference on February 22nd, the police said that they do not think it is a serial murderer, as the evidence does not suggest that. With careful wording, they also suggested that they are not ruling out that it was more than one person. Five months after that, the police released a sketch of a man that was seen on the trail during the time period that matched the man in the video. They may not have been able to see his face in the video, but they saw his clothes and asked about that man. The police would focus on this man for their investigation as he has now become their suspect. And almost two years after this, in April 2019, they held another press conference. At this conference, they announced they are seeking the public's help on information about a car that was parked at the old CBS Welfare Building between noon and 5 on February 14, 2017. They did not release the make or model. This silence is a way to prevent false confession and information. They also released a different sketch based on what he said was thousands of hours of investigation stating this man was between 18 and 40. The police talked about how sketches are not accurate. They are how witnesses see this person, how their eyes see him. Sketches are based on what the mind sees and remembers. That's not always accurate. But they also, at this press conference, said that this is the primary sketch. The other one is now secondary to this. They also released more of the audio. And he allegedly said, guys, down the hill, And they make it clear this is one person speaking and then they release part of the video just a couple seconds to show the man walking the police superintendent was asking if anyone recognized the mannerism of the way this man was walking while telling people to remember that the deteriorating conditions of the bridge would have made his walk seem a little unnatural in the video the police superintendent also spoke of how they believed this man to be from Delphi, currently lives there or has in the past and visits frequently or he could work there. They concluded that he had to know the area, had to be familiarized with it to be able to get in and out without being seen. Let's cover the sketches and rumors before moving on to more with the investigation. The police did admit that less than five people had come into the police station because they looked like the sketch and wanted to clear the names before they were accused. Many people called into the tip line, people they thought looked like the sketch. This case made international news and people called from all over and every tip was investigated. If the tip came from outside their jurisdiction, the police called the local police force who then investigated the tip taking up numerous amounts of resources including police time. People who had grudges against people were purposely calling in false tips. This is disgusting because it takes away from the police who need to solve this case fast before this monster strikes again and kills more little girls. The police got tens of thousands of tips they had to investigate. And then the internet got involved and started doing side-by-side comparisons, ruining innocent people's lives. Though some of these people ruined their own lives beforehand with despicable crimes, but most were just innocent people who happened to resemble the sketch in some of their photos. Internet sloths were going through people's accounts, looking for that one photo where they resembled the sketch and posting this side-by-side online, and the people would share it. The police had to waste time telling people to stop it. And if they think someone looks like the sketch, to call it in. Don't share it, as lives were being ruined. And also, they don't check Facebook, and if it was actually the killer, they won't investigate unless it was called in or emailed to them. Now, this was before they released the second sketch. Because when they released the second sketch, they had encouraged people to come to this public meeting, and they had held it in an area that was huge as a way to accommodate a huge crowd. Then they said the killer was probably in the room, but they also said, we have probably already interviewed you. This right here. This, I feel, was very irresponsible for a police force that is trying to supposedly squash rumors as it is just opening them all back up again. People were coming to the police to get cleared, to stop the rumors, and to say, we probably already talked to you, open them all back up again. As for the video that Libby recorded, the police say they believe this is their killer and that there is more to the video that they are not releasing as it has information only the killer would know. So I hate to say it, but sometimes the police lie and this could be a tactic to get their murderer to think they have more information as a means to keep him scared and to show behavioral signs to his loved ones. One of Libby's extremely good friends somewhat discredits what has been shown to the public. She said that Libby loved to take photos and videos of men and show them to her friends saying, this is your boyfriend, and she wonders if that was what happened. She said Abby was a goofy act and would be like, oh, that person scares me, and they'd tease each other. What if that's what happened? And then she wonders what if then he really scared them? Libby's mother says they were out there to take photos and videos. Anyways, Libby's grandfather thinks Libby recorded it because the guy had to have been acting weird and that she would have shown him later to say how weird he was acting. That was Libby. Anna, Abby's mother, says part of her hopes someone does recognize the voice, but part of her doesn't want it to be recognized. She is afraid she knows the person who killed her daughter. That part seems to me to be what she is most afraid of now, that she knows her daughter's murderer. The police received tens of thousands of tips. They interviewed hundreds of suspects. They investigated a few solid dozen leads that ended up going nowhere. Everybody kept describing it as a roller coaster ride, as they'd get their hopes up and then it would come down as the suspects were cleared. People took up fundraisers to raise money as a reward for the tip that led to the conviction of their murderer. Last I looked it was at $224,000. The tip line phone was considered one of the most valuable resources. People could call anonymous and report their suspicions. The FBI were called in, but they had been keeping track since the beginning as an agent was actually in town on vacation visiting people and he helped participate in the search. The FBI encouraged people to call in any information. They asked people to think back to that day, think about the people they knew. They released guidelines on what to be on the lookout for. This would be post-offense behavior. So I'm going to read the bulletin. The FBI is looking for anyone who changed their appearance, cut their hair, or drastically changed the way they dress, started abusing drugs or alcohol, when they wouldn't have beforehand, has become anxious or irritable, has followed this case in what the media is releasing with a sense that is not normal, has a different sleep pattern now, has been having ongoing conversations about where they were on February 13th, traveled unexpectedly after February 13th, canceled an appointment around February 13th, called in sick to work or suddenly skip the social engagement. Now my opinion, unless this person was psychopathic, their behavior would have changed. A psychopath, like certain serial killers, such as Ted Bundy, can return to normal. You know, the, I can't believe it, he was such a nice guy person they all talk about after. If this person was psychopathic, none of these behavioral identification patterns would apply. Someone has to know who this monster is, who fits this post-offense behavior. If someone did match this, their loved ones probably ignored it, thinking there is no way this person could have done it. Like I said in the last episode, no one wants to believe their loved one could be so evil. The news was also calling for people to think back to see if anyone called into work, canceled an appointment, prior engagement. Changed appearances, anything might be important. Police were encouraging people to not feel guilty if they thought something, but to call it in. If they are innocent, it will only take a few minutes of their time. They were encouraging to report any information. Even the tiniest info might help. The police even say, Do not think I know this person. He could not have done it. Just call it in to the tip line. It is anonymous. Let this person be cleared. But because the police have released so little information, lots of accusations have been made. Even the sheriff says a few people have called in tips against him, like where was he when the murders happened, and he had to be cleared. Family members of the victims had tips called in against them. One cousin discussed how a tip against her partner was called in and cleared. Now, the family does want this case to be spread. They want justice for these two young girls, but has come at a cost. They have had their privacy invaded by internet sloths, news medias, podcasters, etc., who all have also spread wild rumors and accusations against them. I mean, there is limited information being released, and people make up theories to make sense of it. And remember, the family wants us to discuss this case, but we need to remember they lost a child. Each family violently lost a child and need our compassion. I understand that when a young person and females are murdered, it is most likely by someone they know, and the police need to investigate those people, but we cannot accuse every last single person. Accusations ruin lives and it causes more trauma to an already grieving family. This family has had private things put out there and are being harassed by online trolls. It is no wonder that Livy's oldest sister does not participate in documentaries. Strange though that her father doesn't, but I guess that's understandable. People need to be objective and present just the facts. Ran over. Back to the case. So, in an interview, recently retired prosecutor Robert Ives discussed the case with reporters. He was there that day and said it was not a normal, a person was killed here scene, it was an odd crime scene. Just a little side note, everyone's definition of odd is different. He said there was a lot of physical evidence at the scene, but not what you would think. He does think it has to be someone local because it's a small town, not a tourist attraction, it's not a place people go to. But then he was asked about signature, and he said that there was no MO, but there were two to three signatures discovered there. In the documentary, they discussed how offenders attend to repeat signatures and that they are unnecessary behavior at a crime scene. So when he said odd, was it the behavior? They discussed staging, and he said manipulating the bodies is not necessary staging the scene, but could be part of the signature. Now, when some people stage, the crime scene is usually done because the unsub knows the victim and wants to throw off the investigation. The prosecutor also doesn't think that this was a planned murder, that it hadn't been planned in advance to happen. Abby and Libby had a plan in advance to go there that day. In an interview on Fox News, Libby's grandmother said they had DNA evidence. Now let's discuss this for a minute or two. In a news conference in the very beginning of the investigation, the police said they had examined all the science they could get from the scene. Later, they wouldn't say exactly what kind of DNA they had, but from the conversation it seemed they had only contact DNA, but they acknowledged this type can come from anywhere. These were two young girls who went to school with hundreds of students and could also get contact DNA from strangers at stores. The police did say how they have tested people's DNA, and for all of those who had refused, they got warrants and got their DNA. They will not release names, as they don't want to ruin lives, and they know how social media was ruining people's lives. This is a small town. They had never had a murder like this, never had a murder where the victim did not know their killer, and rumors were spreading like wildfires. The police were getting lots of advice on how to run the investigation, and there was lots of questions, why haven't they done this? Why haven't they done that? One such thing is why haven't they checked the cell tower that is very close to see whose cell phones were in the area. The police had to publicly say, you cannot get a search warrant to get that information. You need probable cause. That is an evasion of privacy and it is not legally allowed. And then he went on to pretty much advocate for police to be able to check cell phone towers to see who was nearby. Using the Brutal murder of these two girls as a means to violate privacy. We have a constitution that protects privacy because people with a position of power, aka the police, are known to abuse their power to stay in power, and they will abuse these laws to silence people. Uh, another major issue that I think is worth going over is that during the search they had searched the area around the bridge and found nothing. The next day they found Libby's shoe and the footprints leading to their bodies. We do not know time of death as they will not release the autopsy report. So when were the girls murdered? Were their bodies placed there the next morning? Did their murderer know the woods that well that they were able to place them there while the girls' families were searching? The police do not know who this man is, nor where he came from. A local hunter could know the ways in and out of the area. Ron, who owned the private property, was known for allowing a lot of young men to come and use his property. The police seem to really not have a course of action, but to tantalize the unsub. They are constantly holding press conferences where they are calling him a coward for killing two young girls, how they know it is about power to him, and they know that he wants to know what information they have, and he will find out when they catch him. Um, oh yeah, we know you're hiding in plain sight, and don't expect us to shift gears, but we did. All right, now let's take... A few minutes to discuss the suspects. This was a section I had done a lot of research on and wrote down a ton of information, but I have decided I am not discussing suspects. I kind of changed my mind and I came to the conclusion that I think it's unethical to discuss some of them. Others, though, are suspects because they have been convicted in a court of law of other sex crimes against children or murders or both, but most have been cleared and are irrelevant to this case. But I will discuss one suspect, just because I feel we must. An obvious first suspect would be Ron Logan, the man who owned the property the bodies were found on. They also needed to talk to him to see who had access to his land. Through investigation, they discovered that Ron's alibi was that he was driving his truck with garbage to the city dump. They were able to confirm this and also discovered that Ron had stopped at a local restaurant on his way home and had a couple beers. This caused Ron to have to serve two years in prison, why you may ask? Because in 2014, Ron was convicted of drunk driving and had no license. So, driving and having beers was a violation of his parole and he had to go back to prison. The police have made it absolutely clear that he is not a suspect. They have repeatedly had to tell the public this because of rumors. Now, along with looking at known sex offenders and those with a history of violent crimes, the police looked to see if any other murders were similar. In July 2012, 400 miles northwest, 10-year-old Lyric Cook Morsey and her 8-year-old cousin Elizabeth Collins went missing in Evansdale, Iowa, while out riding their bikes. Their bikes were found in a local park. Their bodies were found 20 miles away in a heavily wooded area they could not find any connections between the two cases. Now, let's talk about some very recent developments that will actually change a lot of things I had said earlier. Ron Logan had died in 2020 and has never been named as a suspect, but in 2022, a search warrant for the property and home of Ron Logan for the execution date of March 6th, Twenty seventeen was obtained by another podcast and released to a news agency. This was because the girls' bodies were found on his property, about 1,400 feet from his home, and apparently they had enough probable cause for it. In the search warrant, it stated that the girls had lost a tremendous amount of blood and that their killer most likely got blood on them. It also said that the crime scene looked staged, that the bodies were moved, then staged, It noted that it looked like there was no struggle, that the girls did not appear to fight back, and that the unsub took a souvenir from them. It did not say what these items were, but it did say the rest of the girls' clothing had been found, so take that how you want to. Also, the warrant said the unsub most likely took photos or videos to memorize the scene. Logan also has a history of violence with women and his body appeared to match that in the video. He also owns numerous weapons. Now remember, I had already discussed Ron's confirmed alibi. The warrant discussed how he lied about his alibi, how he had asked a family member to lie that they were together, which this warrant was soon after the murders, and it would be proven that he lied. The warrant also said that the cell phone tower pinged him near the bridge at the time of the murder, and a text about 8 p.m. put him out of his house and in proximity of the murder scene. Remember, the police afterwards cleared him and even tried to squash rumors that he was a suspect. This warrant revolved a bit of information that changes some of the things I said in this podcast, but those were my thoughts as I started researching this case from the when it happened, saving articles from this year for last. So I think those could have been in line with thoughts as the information was coming out throughout the years. The major thing the search warrant did expose was that the video recording that Libby made was 43 seconds long. The police only released a few seconds of it. What are on those 40 seconds? It is considered too disturbing to be released to the public, leaving little doubt that this man in the still is their killer. The video showed the man following the girls before ordering them down the hill. The warrant also said they found unknown fibers and hairs. My speculation based on the evidence that this seemed like a sexual sadist who fantasized about doing these types of murders for a while and had it planned. He just needed the victims and that day found them. Now, I also speculate, what if the police are spending too much time on people with known records and ruling out people who appear to be good citizens? I mean, look at how many people Ted Bundy fooled before getting caught. It has been almost five years since this murder. A psychopath's behavior would not have changed, and he would have been easily able to fly under the radar. Now, I didn't discuss this before, but I thought... I would discuss a little bit about what a signature was. And I'm just going to read from John Douglas's book, Journey Into Darkness. The term I coined to describe that was signature, because like a signature, it is a personal detail that is unique to the individual. The MO is what the offender does to effect the crime. The signature, in a sense, is why he does it, the thing that fulfills him emotionally. He goes on to say, I have found that signature is a much more reliable guide to the behavior of serial offenders than MO. The reason for this is that signature is static, while MO is dynamic. That is, it evolves as the offender progresses in his criminal career and learns from his own experience. If he can come up with a better means of abducting a victim or transporting or disposing of a body, he'll do it. What he won't change is the emotional reason he's committing the crime in the first place. Now, knowing that the girls lost a tremendous amount of blood at the crime scene, and that in the search warrant, it said the scene looked like it was staged and a souvenir was taken and how the prosecutor said there was two to three signatures, it really makes me question if it truly was the work of a serial killer or someone just starting out. These murders, like I've already said, have changed the community. It also changed family members' direction in life. Chelsea is heavily involved with crime victims and is going to Purdue University for a career in law enforcement. Anna is heavily involved in building a memorial park for the two girls. This case terrified a small community because the killer has not been caught. They don't know where this person is or if it's their neighbor. In one interview, Abby's mother said she was terrified to find out who the killer was. She is afraid that it might be someone they knew. She believes it has to be someone from the community to know the trail system. That terrifies her and other school-age girls who cannot relax and enjoy the parks. We have to remember these were two young, inexperienced girls who were brutally murdered. The chances of this happening is extremely small, but we need to teach young girls how to fight back to survive, how to use their own bodies as weapons. I cannot offer advice on how to survive an attack. Every attack is different, and what works in one may not work in another situation. Humanizing yourself can work. Stating your name, family, who's dependent on you, make something up that's easy to remember If questioned again, or simply fight back, fight hard to escape. Honestly, what's to come is going to be a lot worse, so let them kill you before you get to that point. Fight them, fight them until they kill you. Or go limp, like a dead body. Some get off on the fight, and if you don't fight back, they can't get hard. I've also heard that if you can't get to a weapon, just pee yourself when they're trying something. That is a huge turn off. So much advice as there is no one survival skill that trumps all. I know some are probably thinking a gun does. Yeah, that's if you have it in your hands at all times, ready to go. Even then, someone can sneak up on you and disarm you. So it is best to have multiple strategies and take a self-defense course. YouTube videos to get ideas and practice them. Now, before I go, I just wanna say, if you have any information on who you think might have been the unsub in this case, you can call the tip line at 844-459-5798 or email at Abby and Libby tip at CACOSHRF dot com. I will post that information in the show notes. Well that was a long and brutal case and I'm going to completely end it here. Next week I will be discussing the murder of Linda Marie Brown by her fourteen year old stepdaughter, Cinnamon Brown. So thank you for downloading and listening to this episode. You can like and follow me on Facebook and Twitter. And like I said, I do have a TikTok account. I just haven't used it. Oh, and I guess most importantly, don't forget to follow me on whatever app you are listening to me on right now. Oh, and I will be posting the photo stills and the audio clips And other pictures on the group Facebook account, Death Walks With Us. And on the Twitter account, if you're interested in looking them up. Thank you, and goodbye.